Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino's Security Confidential. Tonight, we are honored to have Amelia Jarbo join us. This is her first podcast, so this is awesome that she chose us uh, to be on the show. But uh, Amelia has an illustrious background. She's a graduate of The Ohio State University, one of my favorite schools, hint, hint, everyone. Um, she has performed many roles in cybersecurity. She has been a senior IT analyst in risk and compliance. She's been a senior analyst in applied security. And in her current role, she's a cybersecurity controls engineer at Cardinal Health. Uh, welcome to the show, Amelia. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So, you know, there's, there's just a plethora of questions um, we have for you. And, and in the next, we'll try and get through as many of them as we can. But where we'd <laughs> like to begin is there's, you know, being a woman in cybersecurity, we find, you know, women are rare in cybersecurity. And we'd love to see that change. So tell us, you know, as a graduate of OSU in computer science, you could have gone many different paths. How did this happen to come into cyber? So I have to back up quite a ways Please, to get to that answer. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always joked that my parents actually predestined me for IT and specifically for cybersecurity. Really? So when, when it was the year 1999, I was dressed up for Halloween as the Y2K bug. Okay. So from a very young age, apparently I was supposed to go into IT. <laughs> the Y2K bug. I, you should send us a picture of that costume and we'll put it in the... Uh, snap it in place that that sounds all right i remember that so, time that was when it outsourcing began actually that's what kicked all that off but really? anyhow we digress please keep, keep going <laughs> so that was really the very beginning of my career in it apparently <laughs> uh beyond that it really happened in high school okay so i was really really lucky to have a female computer science professor in high school really okay Yes. And I believe her name is Mrs. Heron. Okay. And she was phenomenal. She, there were two women in my class of about 35. Okay. <laughs> That's a small And class. what was, oh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> and what happened was she noticed that I had an interest in, in IT at the time, not quite security okay. yet and encouraged me to attend a Women in IT Day hosted by Microsoft. Okay, small little company. Yeah, just that little yeah. tiny Maybe you've no heard of it. No one's heard of it, yeah. <laughs> right. And it was really cool because it was my first time getting to see women in all aspects of IT. And there was someone there in security. So I was able to actually start to talk the conversation there. And what was, did they, influence you heavily or give you some ideas? They started me. They gave me some ideas for sure. At the time I was thinking maybe I'd be a software developer. Um, and then I kind of started my senior year. I started to talk more with people in different aspects of IT. And I learned that with security, that's really where my passion lied because it was all about protecting people. And I wasn't sure what the right pathway was to get there. So it was a lot of me go thinking, well, I'd really like to protect people in some way. And I really want to make sure that people who are older and people who are more, more vulnerable than myself are protected. It's a noble thought. 
And it's well needed. I mean, the amount of seniors that we see that get hit by scams and cyber uh, is unreal. It's very scary because there's so many scams. I remember reading one and it, it's a tale as old as time, right? A woman hears from her grandson that there's that he needs money and gets gets extorted for tons of money. And the idea of that happened to my own grandparents really, really frightened me. I, I can understand that. Uh, and, and it's uh, very much, very much needed to, to help that population. Um, there's in, in cybersecurity, it's often the vulnerable, the most vulnerable that become the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, yeah. And often those times are, those folks are very innocent people and they get taken yeah. And victimized, uh. and it's happening too on the other end of the spectrum. I you see stories now about these kids, and I'm, we'll talk about this later. But in the Hilliard STEM initiative, we've actually had to tailor some of our programming to remind kids: don't click that link, and don't click that ad in that video game you're playing. Have you had any luck with that? Because this could offshoot into a lot of different things. But I just <laughs> quick. Uh, <laughs> do they listen these kids these kids are a lot more savvy than i was when i was their age okay. so they all seem to have a really good idea of you don't click that you don't buy things without your parents permission now with that one we can say it all day long but whether or not they actually listen and actually follow through with what they know is right is a bit of a different story <laughs> but they do seem to understand a lot of the cyber basics right don't give out your personal information over the internet. Don't meet up with someone you haven't met before. And don't don't assume that the person you're talking to is who they actually say they are. That's right. Uh, there's no verification of an identity on the World Wide Web, right? It doesn't take much to create an identity and to even create a fake profile that is completely believable. Or a whole fake life. My oh, goodness. yeah. You can do so many different things. You can. You, you most certainly can. You can con create a complete alternate uh, reality if, if you want to online, right? Definitely. So while you were at OSU, did, did Ohio State's uh, computer science program have any specialization in cyber or? They did to a degree. I've heard the program has gotten a lot more nuanced since I came into it. But I got an informational and computational assurance minor. So I took a few cybersecurity classes. The really cool thing about my time at Ohio State, though, is that a lot of my professors were women, which was shocking and very, very comforting for me because it gave me a kind of that background of like, I can do this too. These women have worked at Bell Labs. They've done all sorts of things. I can do it too. That's, uh, that's a big change uh, since the 1980s when I was there. And um, most of the professors were not women at that point in time. So do you see this changing demographic um, accelerating here in the future with more women coming into the fold? I think it's going to accelerate at least to some degree. So I think the more we educate people and show that a cybersecurity professional isn't always someone in their basement with a hoodie on hacking away, I think we're going to get a lot more diversity into our field. I know 
one of my concerns going into cyber was really a lot of imposter syndrome, right? I was afraid that I wasn't going to make it. I didn't look like these people. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have know how to code from when I was two. Like, well, and not everybody does, but, and, but there are a lot yeah. of people that do it. You know, I think it's a very cybersecurity is a very eclectic bunch of people. Cause it's still very much an emerging profession. I mean, that's, you know, we are not an industry. We're in our infancy, really, as an industry, even today. Yeah. Right. And oh, yeah. um, maybe 40 years from now, it'll be like any other industry where, you know, things have homogenized and there's a set characterization. But right now, uh, from what we have seen, we're, we're a much smaller company, Dark Rhino. But even in our own environment, we've had a plethora of different demographics that have been a part of the organization uh, from different nationalities to women to ethnicities, everything. Uh, and it's so, I don't know that I could say for sure a cybersecurity engineer has an X profile, right? I mean, it, you definitely can't. Right. People have come from all over. I've had managers who were software engineers. It's, the scope of people who are in security has changed so much and it's great. I think the more of those diverse backgrounds we can get, the better. Yeah. It's a, it's a very uh, open-minded profession. The one common thread I will say is most people that I have come across as practitioners that they all have a lot of creativity in common. They, they have an ability to improvise. Because I don't know. I mean, there's a you know, you're well versed. There's a lot of frameworks in cybersecurity out there, but as such, the playbook is very fluid. You know, you you have yes. to adapt on a daily basis. It, it's not a set environment that you can be. Oh, I've set this up now. I can be static. You know, and not worry about it. Exactly. And oddly enough, I think. A lot of the people that you're seeing in security now have a lot of those creativity, that creativity yes. in their backgrounds. So I know, so I was a classically trained violinist for many years. Oh, really? And I know that, yes. And I have team members who are also played instruments for a very long time. And when you play music, you can really learn to improvise. And I, I think that even though they're in two very different scopes of understanding, those skills do transfer a lot. Well, I'm a guitar player, so I can understand that completely, and I agree with that. Uh, there's um, those things do translate. You know, it, it's your ability to think gets amplified, and that's the simplest way that I can describe it. You you have a lot more options because yes. in music there are you know, you know music in some ways is similar. We have music theory, but it's not set in stone. That's why it's a theory, no. right? Exactly. Right. Uh, there's. I can step out. You can step out a key if you want. We can. We can do. We can break those rules. If you know the rules, you can break those rules. And and cybersecurity has a lot of similarities in that regard. Right. Definitely. And as a guitar player, you know this too. You improvise on a, on a consistent basis. Oh, all the time. Well, music. some art forms of music <laughs> are totally improvisational. Sorry about that. There's someone. <laughs> forgot to hit the do not disturb button on my thing but yeah they are 
some of the greatest musicians we know was all about improvising. I mean, this is a rabbit hole that yeah. we could go down and we'll never come back from, but <laughs> right. Exactly. But a lot of that happens also in, on the cybersecurity side, which brings us to a topic that bridges two sets of people, the compliance and cybersecurity, right? <laughs> and, and I ask this of a lot of CISOs, right? We, we see so many breaches out there and a lot of times the big names in the news are all compliant companies. There's not a single company among them that didn't hit every checkbox on compliance. So you've worked in that area and the compliance guys, I always view a lot more as the accounting types, hard and fast rules. They're set in stone and thou shall, right? And, and <laughs> cyber is completely opposite of that, right? How do you build great cyber and great compliance, reconcile the two things? What's been your experience there? I found that in the case of a lot of compliance areas, there is an opportunity for adaptation. So one of the, my favorite examples to use for this, are you familiar with PCI, payment card industry? Yeah, very much so. So I got to do some of those audits back in one of my internships okay. in college. And that was interesting in the sense that it wasn't the same thing every time you did it. So while it was, you had to meet these guidelines. And so in this case, I was going to stores. I was going into certain okay. stores to check the compliance. It wasn't the same questions we asked every time to get the, to get the compliant level. It was really a lot about that adaptation and kind of changing the question and reframing the narrative. And I'm seeing that as kind of potentially where the future of compliance is going to be in reframing that narrative and mixing and remembering that just because you're compliant doesn't mean you're secure. Exactly. <laughs> and, vice and vice versa, versa. right? But there should be some core, because the whole idea behind compliance was that said that you have a certain level of controls in place that should give yes. people that do business with you a sense of safety that, you know, your organization has adopted certain behaviors that will not put them in jeopardy. Yes. Right. Correct. So the two should sync and, up. In theory. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of it, though. So think about your controls, right? Let's take a okay. firewall. You can set up a firewall in a specific instance in time. And it's going to be perfect. And that's the firewall you showed the audit, right? Everything is locked down. Everything is perfect. You can't do HTTP. You just have HTTPS. All the, everything you need to pass an audit is there. But let's say the next day, someone goes and flips something. Okay. The audit isn't going to measure that. That's correct. But I think a lot of where you're going to see security going, and maybe I'm a little biased because this is what I did in my previous yeah. team, is continually verifying and validating that the controls that you have in place are still in place day in, day out. And I think the more you see that and the more you see that every compliance measure is continually being hit rather than just point in time being hit, the better you're going to see companies that are compliant also staying secure. So I'm envisioning a matrix here of some kind where on the one side you have the compliance framework and on the other side you have your security controls 
and you're evaluating one against the other on an ongoing basis. Is, am I hearing yes. that correctly? Yep. Are there metrics that, do you have like your set of top 10 or top five metrics or things that you think as a practitioner, uh, someone should keep their eye on? If they had a dashboard, they should at least look at themselves in this way. Is, is there such a thing? So I think I, at least I'm still trying to work on that myself and figuring out what the top metrics are, because I think the metrics change a lot based on who your audience is, right? Yes. So your IR analysts are going to look at something very different than your compliance folks are. And I think when you're looking at some aspects, some of it is just as simple as, are these indexes, let's go to Splunk, okay. and are, are these logs always coming in? Are they coming in the intervals that you expect them to come in? Are things up or down? So I think that's a great starting metric. Is what you think is coming supposed to be coming in actually coming in? It's very simple, but it does start to give you that baseline of where are we right at this very moment? So when you look at the decision makers, they're going to see compliance as an absolute need to have. They, and everyone's happy to spend lots of money on those audits. I don't always find that to be true personally on the cybersecurity side. You know, I want to do this. Well, why? How do you um, get the decision makers to understand? Like, well, if you talk to a decision maker about Splunk, they may not understand that log frequency is very, very relevant, very, very important, and the systems that you are interrogating you need to expand them and therefore you need to spend more money on whatever it may be that you need to do to make that happen. How does, how do you communicate this to a decision maker and reconcile? A lot yeah. of the time. So a lot of the times my technique is actually how would I explain this to my parents? Okay. And that is the, that's the method I go with. So I think about what I would do if I was talking with my dad and I know the kind of questions he would ask. He would always ask why and how which is great. It's a great learning mechanism. So what I go with is I break it down in my head before I explain it to the decision maker. I go, what is this tool in its essence? Because if you say a log aggregator, people aren't always going to care, yeah, quite honestly. Absolutely. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> or, or if you say if firewall you say refresh, they're going to think, well, this is a lot of money. All right, we don't care. Move it along, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're going to say the dollar yeah. signs. <laughs> which is understandable. Someone needs to be checking right, the dollar right. signs. <laughs> but if you talk about it in the sense of with like a firewall, everything that we're doing has to be done for a reason. And so explaining what that reason is at the most basic level is going to make a world of difference. So let's say HTTP versus HTTPS. Okay, that's a very basic thing. Sure. Yes. But if you're not in security or you're not dealing with it on a daily basis, it, it's not going to be as straightforward. But if you explain it as maybe, so HTTP is like having everything that you're saying being broadcast out without any filter. There is going to be nothing that is blocked from the open, from the open web. Right. Right. You're going to have your username and password out there in plain yep. text. Anyone can see it. HTTPS is kind of like putting that shield up. It's saying, you don't get to see this as easily. 
and you don't get to have immediate access to this information. At least not without at least a little bit of work. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, still today, a lot of work, but that's changing too. Hopefully. So as yes. computational <laughs> power goes up, we may not. Forty years from now, this may be a very different discussion on that topic. Yes, <laughs> it, and I'm sure. It will I'm be. sure it will be. We'll we'll see advances there, but th that makes sense. So you're going to, and you're doing this across any of the controls that you're putting yes. in place. So. If you were, you know, a lot of the listeners to uh, our audience, they are practitioners, okay? Or they're younger companies. They're not the cardinal healths of the world. You know, they, they might be a much smaller organization. And when they think about cyber, to them, this becomes a um, overwhelming conversation. It's like, where do I begin? Uh, you know, the, we have everything. How many acronyms? I can't even count them. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Millions. millions of acronyms, right? <laughs> uh, do I start off with IAM? Do I put in a firewall? Do I put in MFA? Do I do SSO? Am I doing, am I going to put in CASB? Mm -hmm. you, if you're a smaller company, oh. yeah, you're like, what the hell are these people talking about? <laughs> oh, so yeah. when, when you, if you were advising a smaller firm that is starting their journey with cybersecurity, what how would you suggest they begin? How would you walk them through getting sufficient controls in place that would be okay for them? Well, the first thing I'd probably tell them is to breathe <laughs> because there are a million acronyms out there, there and a million different tools. Right. But really, I think what I would mostly focus on with them is figuring out where are your biggest risk areas. Okay. So... And similar to what I do, so similar to how I would speak about controls to higher leadership, the way I kind of view risk is it's about how likely is something going to happen and how big is the impact if it does. One of my favorite drawings of this is the, is spikes and gaps. So what it is, is if you have a very high likelihood of something bad happening, there is a very wide gap and many, many spikes at the bottom. The chances of something bad happening are very high. If there's a low likelihood of something happening, but the chances are still that something that if it did happen, it'd be really bad. It's a very small gap, but the spikes, and if you fell through that gap, would still be really bad. And so just breaking it down and remember, in teaching risk is kind of this more manageable idea is where I would tell these companies to start and to really start to focus on those higher risk areas. Where is it where it would, if you just take one step, you're immediately going to fall into spikes? You know, this sounds um, a lot like the FAIR framework, you know, <laughs> um, where you're compute, quantifying magnitude of loss, likelihood of something versus likelihood of it taking place. And it's not a number, but it's a continuum. It's actually a, a curve. Yes. Uh, and risk is, a, risk is a spectrum. It very much is. And I think people need to understand that. But there's a lot of people in our industry that are propagating single value risk scores, right? They're like, if you take this quiz online or you step through this program, it's gonna be like your credit score. We'll give you a number and that tells you how good or bad 
you are. It doesn't give you what you're talking about, which is that range. And then, yes. you know, that likelihood and magnitude. You know, maybe something is very likely, but it's going to have no effect. But it might yeah. cost a lot to defend against it. So to hell with it. You accept that risk. Exactly. It's like, do you accept it? Do you avoid it? What's your goal? What, what is, What's your plan? What is your goal? So when people, uh, when you're looking at risks in a company, are you, where are you starting? Are you starting with just the revenue generating activities and saying what can be an impact there? How do you define the crown jewels? Because as simple as that may seem, we run into a lot of companies that have a hard time. <laughs> Well, it's also not a simple, super simple measure, right? Because right. <laughs> when you think about, when I think about crown jewels, I really think about, it's not just the revenue generating things, right? Revenue generating is what keeps the company up. But also, what are those immediate things behind it that could cause your revenue generating things to go down if something were to go wrong? There's kind of level, in my mind, there are levels of crown jewels. There's... If the application itself goes down or if the things behind it go down, both are really, really bad and both need to be protected against, yeah. but you have to think about what, what are you most worried about losing? And I think that's an answer that's going to be different for every single entity, yes. but that's the rabbit hole. They should go down because that's going to create it's that chain of events, if you yes. will. That are that could cascade or, or occur in individual sequence that could cause a disruption in business. Right. Definitely. Do you um, do you tie the company's disaster recovery to cybersecurity? I I'd say it's I'd say disaster recovery is right hand in hand with cybersecurity. If you don't have a good disaster recovery program things are going to go down. Your company's still not secure. And you still need to have that way of protecting and making sure that what's your business continuity plan? What is your plan for getting things back up and keeping, keeping the business, keeping the crown jewels working? Is there a framework that is your favorite that you, that you like to work with in cybersecurity? Or what are your thoughts on that? There's a plethora of them out there, oh. but... There are many frameworks there are many that frameworks, I love very right. dearly. Yeah, I, and everybody has their thing, but I thought, you know, as a practitioner, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, so I have a few. Okay. I think I think PCI is the most fun to evaluate. Okay. Personally. Why so? I, you know, I would have never I, you're the first person I've heard <laughs> use PCI and fun in the same sentence. So I got to ask why. My piece, my experience getting to actually validate the controls of PCI was one of my favorite experiences in college because I actually got to touch things and have a very tangible security experience. I was touching point of sale devices and saying, hey, I can flip this upward. I can take it out. I can put my credit card in and it comes out plain text. I don't think that was actually that wasn't an actual example, but that is something that could happen. <laughs> But actually getting to flip over safes and say, is there a key on the bottom? It's just so much fun to get to see hand in hand what your effect on security is and seeing, okay, 
what is the what is your remediation plan? If it's a key on the bottom of the safe, let's just store the key somewhere else. Yes. <laughs> and getting to explain to these store associates why these techniques are appropriate and what you need to do was just it was so cool. <laughs> that's not, it sounds like you had a great time with it. So that that's yes. PCI. What what about so PCI and fun? Check. Next one. Yes. PCI, PCI is, fun. is fun. So my other favorite framework to work with is NIST. So I find think NIST breaks security down into some very tangible elements. And I'm also very curious to watch their privacy framework evolve. Because I think as that privacy framework evolves, cybersecurity and privacy also go hand in hand. I think cybersecurity is a very interconnected web. But as that tool evolves, I think we're going to see NIST become a more popular framework. I know I enjoy see I enjoy being able to map controls to NIST because it gives companies a very clear picture of this is a detect, this is this in very very plain text that is very clear cut and concise. Have are you um, by chance familiar with the OWASP? Threat and Safeguard Matrix? I am not. Oh, I'll, I'll follow up with a link afterwards for because because what you're describing is exactly that. It's very cool. Um, uh, you know, we were we had the inventor of that on our show uh, last week. Yeah, wow. he's the that's very yeah, cool. Um, Ross is the uh, he's the CISO of Caterpillar Financial Corporation, and he uh, he came up with that, but you're exactly right. And he described the same thing. You know, you overlay the NIST framework against the threats, and then you can say for prevent, this is what we have. For detect against this particular threat, this is what we have. So check that out. I mean, from what you're describing, that's pretty Definitely. cool. That's, uh, that's a great idea. That's fascinating. I think I really do think that the future of cybersecurity is making sure it's known as an everyone problem. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. And we need to be sharing a lot of these concepts across. Um, yes, and the best way to do it is to not gatekeep. <laughs> the more terms you use, the more lost people are going to get. And the more we can keep it simple and to the point, I think the, the happier and the more secure people will be in the long term. So you mentioned the NIST framework uh, and privacy. Now, a lot of states, including Ohio, is coming up with its own privacy standards. Do you think, uh, how do you think this is going to play out if you, ha if you have a crystal ball? Because California, New York, they're all doing their own thing. We already have GDPR in Europe. Ohio is doing its own thing. I don't know... Um, if all of these folks, how well they have consulted cybersecurity practitioners in some of these policy decisions, but yes. <laughs> what, what, what do you think the ramifications are going to be if you were to take a guess? I think if, if I were to have a crystal ball, yeah. <laughs> I think what's either going to happen is there will eventually be a federal legislation or most states will come to a very similar understanding of what needs to go into cybersecurity law or regulation like GDPR. I think CCPA is a very interesting example because that one's still growing and still adapting. That's right. And I think that the more states look at that and once there is a very clear cut model of 
within within the United States of here is a program that works. Yeah. I think we're going to see that ad- adapted a lot more. I, I think uh, that and if we get to a truly a patchwork and we don't get to some kind of unification, then everyone's going to drop to the lowest common denominator. And typically the yep. person that suffers in that is the end consumer. <laughs> yep. And that's privacy is all about protecting that last, that end person. Yeah. But I think most companies view that as burdensome. I mean, I think even uh, now isn't um, Facebook is pushing back on Apple with iOS 14.5, right? Where iOS 14.5 is allowing you to enable selective tracking or deny tracking. Uh, and Apple's kind of forcing that on app developers that you have to follow the standard and and Facebook is not that happy with it. Interesting. I I think it's interesting to see a company pushing down a standard like that because it's not coming from a state. It's actually coming from a tech company. Yeah, but Facebook builds its revenue on knowing everything about you. Right. And if you deny yes, them Build. So, you know, one of the problems in, in our world is that I think everyone's gotten used to free on the Internet, right? Yes. And that's we've trained everybody over 7 billion people that that's the way it's going to be. Well, then you are the product at that point. Yep. And that's what we taught those kids at Hilliard, too, is that free isn't free. Exactly. Nothing is ever truly free, ever. It's not. And Facebook probably knows more about Facebook and Google probably know more about you than your closest confidants know about you. Potentially more than we know about Potentially ourselves. more, depending on uh, the way uh, they can do uh, algorithm, algorithmically, uh, you know, search for patterns and predictions. Yeah, they probably do know a little bit more about us <laughs> than we know about ourselves. And that information is yes. beginning. So anytime someone steps in that challenges that fundamental I can see that becoming an issue. Definitely. And that's of conflict in cyber and uh, privacy as well. You know. Yes. Um, I think perhaps maybe anonymization of data might take um, that we might have better methods and better approaches to doing that in the future that could help alleviate some of these privacy concerns. I think so too, and I think part of it also. I don't. I don't know if you heard about this, but if if I did, if you'd have, please stop me. If there was a story about a woman who found out she was pregnant because of the coupon she started getting from targeted advertising. You got to be kidding me! I did not know kidding. that. I will find. Oh, you I the got. Story that's a that. great one. I. That's that's incredible, actually. Yes, and that that's scary. To me, the idea that a company could know I was pregnant before I know is kind that of terrifying. That means that your healthcare data is out there somewhere. Yes. And or or that your or that their behavioral analytics are just that on point. Which is also scary. Yeah, I'm trying to think I mean if someone has figured out correlations to be that not just accurate, but precise, that mm-hmm. could make for some very interesting forecasting on people's behaviors. Yes. 
definitely. I, I would, if I was waging a bet on this, somebody outed the information. Somehow that data got out. That's my wager, but I, I would love to be wrong about it, actually, because the idea of an algorithm figuring it out before anybody else did is kind of cooler. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> and it's one: how do you defend against that? And and then that be, right. that again gets to if you could anonymize that information before it is submitted to analytics. Yeah, and how you protect the end user from something like that too. A little bit about security events. You've been in the business for a while. Uh, is there when they take place? When an intrusion take pla takes place? In your experience, has there been some basic causes that have that typically lead to uh, a security incident happening? So I can't speak from personal experience in this one, but what I have noticed typically as a commonality has been a lot of end user training, as well as things that are not always properly configured. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, security is an everybody problem. And I think that is a lesson that is slowly becoming more well-known, but it's not always fully known at every level of the business. That is a um, very astute observation. I, and we would agree with you completely. We often at Dark Rhino say the most underutilized security asset of a company is its people. And that's probably the yes. largest security asset a company has. Uh, Definitely. Right. And, I think a lot of it too is having those security ambassadors at different levels too, and having people who can explain security to the business, having people who can explain security to whoever your customer is too, because they're also at risk. See, that gets back to the why and how. Uh, if, if you yes. are of the mental outlook that most people are reasonable human beings, then if you explain to them the why and the how, they might be inclined to follow a given policy recommendation, right? Correct. Don't do your banking at uh, on an HTTP network, right? At a coffee shop. <laughs> why? Most people yep. are like, oh, that's so inconvenient. But if they actually understood the why. Exactly. And teaching that why, I think, I think people are naturally inquisitive. They want to know why, why shouldn't I do this thing? <laughs> yeah. And why should I just test it just to find out if I, if I can? Because just because you can doesn't mean you should. That, that's exactly right. I, you see it in manuals all the time. It says, you know, they have the big X's and things and, uh, and says, hey, don't do this. My first question is why? What happens if you do? Since you've gone out of your way to tell us in big terms not to do this, what happens if we do do that? It's like, don't push the big red button. Yeah, why? Well, what happens if I do? <laughs> and, uh, but you're seeing, see, this is very encouraging. So are you seeing in companies, people are engaging the end users much more? And, and I'm not just talking phishing training because it seems like that's become ubiquitous now, but goes beyond mm -hmm. that. Are people actually taking the time to explain to people why certain policies are in place or why certain procedures or processes are in place? I think we're starting to see a lot more of that. I know in the past few companies I worked with, we have fabulous security awareness pro like security awareness oh. month programs where you get people from everywhere who are just really interested to learn more about the field. I don't think it's an issue of people not caring as much as people not knowing 
what anything is. So having programs in digital fluency and having people come in who have been who have been the attackers or have who have been the protectors, red team and blue team. I think a lot of that both sparks that interest and gets people going, maybe I should research more into this and gets people starting to understand that why and understanding why we do security training, why we do phishing tests, things like that. Uh, that's very, I think that uh, you guys have put into place a world-class cybersecurity program because uh, a lot of companies we see are missing that. When you talk to their end users, they, they'll often say cybersecurity, that's some guy with a hoodie in a basement somewhere, you know, doing whatever it is that they're doing. It, it isn't a tangible thing for them. And if you make it, and you're making it tangible, and that's really kind of cool. Yes. yes, we have we have some great people who spend a lot of time making those programs amazing. So, and I'm thoroughly impressed every single time I see one of them. That's that's very cool. So, um, speaking of awareness, I know we're getting to the hour here. I, I wanted to ask you about your work with two things. So, first of all, you're on the steering committee for machine learning. Yes. So is this cyber related? Are, are you? No. No, it is not. <laughs> so the machine learning guild at Cardinal Health brings in external companies and does internal use cases as well. So it's really building awareness to people who are both in machine learning and outside machine learning, like myself, <laughs> about what's going on in the field and what's going on within our own company. Oh, that's... So where do you see this applying to cyber? Again, a crystal ball question. And I know that every cyber product now has AI in it. Okay, so we'll just discount all that for now. But where do you, <laughs> where do you see this uh, evolving to in the mid future, mid and long-term future, Keith? Mid future, yeah. I like that. So, well, going back to what you were saying about every, every tool has AI incorporated in now. Just because tools have AI doesn't mean that it's actually tuned. And I think that's one of those more interesting things is that I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on fine tuning these tools and actually training people to be cross-functional across these organizations. So you might see people who have a security background do machine learning or people who have a machine learning background doing cybersecurity. I think the more of that broad knowledge you get, a T-shaped security expert where it's a broad knowledge and a specialization yeah. in one area. I think the more that we get into a refined period of machine learning, the more we're going to see things like that appearing. That's, that's very cool. Uh, and where the compute power is going, I can see it being applied to a much broader set of problems. Definitely. As, as things progress. Tell us a little bit about your mentorship work at Hilliard High School. That's very interesting as well. What? So I've gotten to do two programs with Hilliard. I've gotten to do one at their middle school and one at their elementary okay. school. And the middle school one is all was all about teaching agile concepts to middle schoolers, okay. which was very interesting. Kids have some of the best ideas out there for how to solve problems that we don't even think about. Like, I'm trying to remember what the project was. I think one of the projects was it's too cold in half the classrooms and too hot in the other half. And they have the most fascinating solutions for how to solve this. 
And what we were doing is actually guiding them through the, the design phases of that. Like, how do you design something for this? How do you check the risks on it? How do you make sure that you're checking all of your boxes when this is done? How do you refine? How do you test? Do you think kids understood? Because some risk is such a kind of a uh, nebulous concept, right, at that age. Do, do you think they understood that? I think a lot of them are at least starting to get it. I think risk is something I'm still start, I'm still getting it. I think we're all still sure. trying to understand fully what risk is. But I think I think those kids are starting to really really starting to understand what a weakness is, what a, like what vulnerabilities were, and how that could be applied as areas where you are at risk of having problems. And you did this also at the elementary school level. Elementary school level was a bit different. Yeah, I was going to say. So, <laughs> not going to try to explain risk to third graders. <laughs> I would say that would be, that would be, I would like to attend that class. Oh, yeah. Well, you might want to attend this class anyway. So, it was, we did um, a full year. This was during COVID. So, it was a little bit different than in person, where we were teaching these kids all sorts of things about STEM. So, it was things, we had them make snow once, where it was talking about, uh, design hypothesis. So it was combining, oh, what was it? I think it was baking soda and shaving cream okay. and talking about what the right ratio was. So we'd had them test and then refine until they got the right formula down. Oh, no. You know how many upset parents stem. you created by doing <laughs> We warned them ahead of time. We warned them well in advance. <laughs> But things like that, where we were just really starting to spark that STEM interest early on to really ideally build a lot more professionals, not just in security, but in all areas of STEM. See, that's very cool. Because I know I, I have a, that's one of my personal pet peeves with our educational system is that there's this kids at an early age conceptualize that math is hard, science is hard, or some, it gets into their head. And, and when that happens, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It, well, and the thing I would say to those kids too, I didn't like math at all until college. And even then I didn't really like math. <laughs> but I think a lot of the ways to break that kind of idea is to really explain not just the how, but also like, why, like what you're actually doing when you take this very conceptual thing and make it tangible. Because I think kids are really all about that tangible yes. aspect. And see, that comes from your experience as a musician. Because, <laughs> you know, the way traditionally, and, I, and I've had this uh, it's same concept there also, kids trying to learn something, they're like, well, this is just too hard. Well, sometimes if you impose a lot of formality on the education process, that first you're going to learn this, you're going to do this. That's not how people learn. When you and I learned to speak English, we were saying nonsensical terms and making sounds yep. way before we were speaking in complete senses, way before we learned punctuation, grammar, all those things, right? Definitely. So if we can create an environment like you did with the 
baking soda and shaving cream where it's tangible. Make a mess first. Try it. Yeah. Once you, if that is of interest to you, then the child is naturally, or people will naturally be inclined to explore it a little further. And there'll be a plenty of time for the formality of things to come along. Exactly. Why start kids on something that is so conceptual and so up in the air about what it actually means when you can start them with something like that, where they can touch it and they can, they can do it themselves. There's freedom to fail immediately. That's a, uh, I hope a lot of people listen to this show because that, um, I might think that would be a cool title of this one. That's a very cool term, freedom to fail immediately. And that freedom, if you have it, is what creates innovation. It what It's what yeah. creates learning. And I personally will make a political statement here. I think it's what gives the United States its edge in innovation across the globe. Because it is an environment yeah. where uh, in other nations you have very intelligent people, highly educated, but that freedom to fail immediately has consequences that are not good. Yes. Whereas here, well, you can. Yeah. And it's awesome. And I think that if you don't have the freedom to fail, you're learning less than when you do. And that's that also could be coming from someone who has failed a lot over the course of education and career. But I think that the, having that freedom to fail can really set you up for greater success later on. Uh, that is a great note to end the serious part <laughs> of this discussion on. But tell us a little bit about anything that, that you'd like us to include in the show notes. Any events, appearances? Are you doing any books, any articles, anything coming up here that you want to make all the audience aware of? So I will be speaking at the ISSA Central Ohio Summit in oh, May. Fantastic. So if you're interested in stopping by, please do. <laughs> and I think that's about it. Um, if you want a good organization to join, International Consortium of Minority Cybersecurity Professionals is a great one. Um, we're, we're doing more events now, and I think, I think it's going to grow a lot in the future. Uh, if you wouldn't mind following this, send us the link to that, and we'll include it in the show notes. Yes. Yep. So people can just click can on that. the link and get to it. Sounds well, good. thank you, Amelia. It's been a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great first Yeah, I, I was going to say, I hope this was a good first experience <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of other people who are probably going to be reaching out to you after this to be on the show. And I think you're a wonderful guest. <laughs> so thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too.